You're listening to episode 1337 of GNU World Order. Yes, that's right, the 37th episode of season 13 for day 252 of 2019. Now, the significance of episode 1337 is not lost upon me, just as the significance of 1331 was not lost upon me and I couldn't think of anything special to do. Uh, in this episode, I, I decided to try to do a little bit something special. So, if you don't know, the significance of 1337 in the hacker culture is that for a while, back in the, I don't know, 90s, early 2000s, whatever, the infamous leet-speak trend was happening at large, and I don't exactly really understand what it was all about. I have no stories or memories really of, of anyone seriously using it, but it was a thing apparently that some people did somewhere, whereby to spell an English word you would replace letters that had obvious numerical equivalent, visual equi equivalents, with that number. So for instance, if you were to spell the word code, you might write C and the letter, or the number zero, and then D and then the letter three, because three looks roughly like an E, except backwards. It's leet speak is what people call it, and I don't know if it was actually used by anyone with with actual belief, like with anyone really bought into it. I'm not the best person to ask about that sort of thing, because I've never really been a part of any group that has really truly bought into a thing that they were doing in, in such a way that the expression of, of the culture actually meant something to the participants. In other words, I don't tend to use slang, I, I don't tend to use terminology that's made up to, to sort of set someone apart in a group. It's just not something that I've ever really been a part of. I never had friends back in the 90s or the 2000s. I can actually end the sentence there, but I could I could extend it to say I never had friends back in the 90s or 2000s who who spoke you know who who typed in leet as if though it actually identified them as something special. I've used it sarcastically. I've, I've had friends who use it sarcastically or or with a certain amount of awareness, but I've I've never you know there was never any group who actually used it in the way that for instance classically you would see maybe or you, you could imagine it being used in the movie, what is it called, Hackers, I think? Is that what it's called, Hackers? Where they say hack the planet all the time, and there's that main character, Zero Cool, and that whole thing. It's it's sort of wrapped up in that kind of imaginary culture that I, I don't legitimately know if, if it actually existed or not. If it did, then great, that's cool. Good for people who used Leet Speak. Uh, if it did not, it doesn't really matter. Leet, of course, L-E-E-T, or 1337 is sort of short for elite, E-L-I-T-E, -E, so apparently the subculture also didn't know how to spell correctly, but that's that's the mythos around 1337, and that's why it is a thing among among hackers and the Linux crowd. It's it's a it's just kind of this nod to that either imagined or real subculture around computer programming who, for whatever reason, decided that words weren't good enough with just alphabetic characters and really needed to be replaced by numbers. In my world, LeetSpeak has done a lot more harm than it has done good. Uh, people regularly at my old, old, let's see, this old, 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 it's three, three olds now, job, the passwords that people would create were almost always consistently because my predecessor at that job had sort of set the tone that this is how we create passwords. Why they adopted it, I don't know. I couldn't get people to adopt practices 
that that I had mandated, but but for whatever reason they followed this example, and that was to create a password by just replacing the vowels with numbers. That was secure passwords at that job. Could not get people to to divorce themselves of that habit. It was it was quite frustrating actually. So in in my real world experience, um, it's it's caused me nothing but pain. But in the imaginary world, the online world, it it is a tradition. It's a it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing that people know about. And if you are into computers, then that's something that you kind of just know about. Now, I'm talking about this not only because the episode number is 1337, but I'm also talking about it because I think it brings up a point. And it brings up this, this idea that there is a, a secret language as paltry as leet speak might be i think that there it does kind of echo this sentiment that there's a secret language or a secret knowledge behind being a either a hacker or a programmer or a linux user there's this this point that you reach where you maybe get a badge and you you know the secret handshake and you know the the right phrases and the jargon just kind of rolls off your tongue and you just know all the lingo because you have become leet because you have reached this point that you you know this inner circle of 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 people all in on this knowledge and that's really neat except it also can be exceedingly exclusive right it's it's exclusionary in fact at least it might seem that way because there's if there is this group if there is an inner circle then there must be an outer circle there might there must be people outside of that ring who are not included in the secret knowledge and i think most people will agree that like i don't know 9 times out of 9 9 out of 10 hackers that i've ever known absolutely would not agree with that idea right that's that's exactly it goes against everything that that the the whole ethos holds dear and and typically the ethos is that information is meant to be shared and that humans share things by nature and that if you find something out then you broadcast it you tell others about it because that's how we all learn so the idea that there would be this inner circle is is not only is not only sort of silly because we all know, you know not all of us know but i mean certainly the people who other people might point to and say oh they're in that inner circle we we know that there is no inner circle first of all there's not the amount of of cohesion to form a circle there it's simply there are there is simply not enough shared um, principles to form a, 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 a an unbroken or an unbreakable circle. It, that's just not how hacker culture is. Not how open source. It's not how collaboration works. If you have twenty people, and, e- and even if those twenty people have signed on to the same project, those twenty people each have a different idea of what they want to do individually and what they can contribute and what they should contribute and the way that the project should go, and so on and so forth. So there's there's no inner circle in open source because there are so many different forces happening within open source that there's just there's there's no ability and and no well, certainly no interest in closing that off to anyone. Now that's the inside, right? That's the people making it up. That still doesn't change 
the 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 interpretation of this apparent secret knowledge from a quote unquote outsider, someone who is not participating and looking at it and thinking, oh, I would really like to be a member of that of that body of people, but I don't know how to become a member of that body. And when I go to someone and, and say that I want to be a member, if I do that, uh, I get a different answer every time, or or they don't tell you know they're not giving me the the key in. They just keep telling me to okay, well then you're a member and uh, can start contributing. And, and I don't know what that means. What does contribute mean? What, how do I contribute? Who do I contribute to? Who do I submit my work to? It's a very confusing process for people. So I want to talk about a little bit about the the concept of the, 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 the elite culture, whether or not there is such a thing. And then I want to talk about how how it is that people got there, so that people who maybe don't know how to get there can possibly start getting there. So let's let's start down that path. So first of all, the culture, as I've as I've already explained, it doesn't it doesn't actually exist in the way that people I think a lot of people think it exists. It is not a cohesive unit. It is a lot of different people who share one belief, and that is that the code that they are producing in their spare time, or as part of their job, or both, should be open. It should be shareable. It sh- you, you should be able to look at it. You should be able to remix it, or recode it, or, or use it in other projects, and, and certainly redistribute it. You should be able to share it with other people, and have the, and have an assurance that 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 person is going to also be able to, to share it with other people as well. So generally there's an expectation that it is going to be self-perpetuating, that people who, who receive code can then also pass that code along. Now, of course, we all know that there are certain open source licenses that, that don't have that self-perpetuation baked in. There are some that, that allow a termination point. You can get code, you can use it, and then you can stop it. You can say, okay, that's as far as this code is going to go. I'm going to use it, and I'm never going to give back to the, the person to, from, from whom I gained this code. I'm just going to use it invisibly. I'll, I'll, I'll put the copyright notice that I'm required to post to, so that people know that I didn't write this stuff, but the way that I'm using it and the, the programs that I'm using it in themselves are not going to be open source. And that's fine. That's one model, right? If you're writing the code and you're putting it out there into the world and that's how you and you're okay with other people using your your thing without giving back, that's fine. There's there's not a problem with that. I mean, it's your code. You can do whatever you want with it, right? So, I mean, I personally I don't I don't tend towards that. I mean, sometimes I do. There are some things that I feel are are that they're trivial enough that that the 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 ability to to use it without ever returning any kind of token of appreciation or acknowledgement that you're using it. I mean, that's there are times where I've I've definitely published things under a, a very, I guess what we're calling a permissive license, meaning that there really truly are no restrictions. And it's, it's I use the GNU all permissive license because um, that seems to fit. The, the the use case it doesn't even require I don't think um, last time I looked uh, a copyright notice it is it is just you you do whatever you want to with the thing because it's just not something that 
that for me is worth troubling over. It's kind of a little bit like a Creative Commons zero license, I guess. Other stuff I, I don't do that with. If, if it's meaningful and it's substantial, then I, I require that people give back or, or acknowledge where they got it from and so on. And I think that's perfectly acceptable as well. So people who are quote-unquote in open source, that's the, the belief system that they share, that there's some degree of, uh, there's some aspect of, of, of open auditability and uh, sh uh, remixability and, and redistributionability, redistributableness um, to the code. And that's it. That's all they. That's all the cohesiveness that there is. So to look at the, at the, the open source group that you're looking at and thinking, well, I can't get in with that group. It, it's really not about can you get into open source. It's about whether you can get into into literally that group of people, and that's a social thing. Because to be in on something. You do. You, you want to feel like you are socially a part of that group. Whereas if the code is open, you can, you can by definition, you can join that code. Like you can do whatever you want with that code. You, you, you are your own group the minute you take that code and sort of make it your own. And how do you make it your own? Well, you, you declare that it is your own. Whether you, you fork a Git repository or you just download the thing onto your computer, it is now your code. And you could be the maintainer of that, of that, version of that code and you could be your own open source group whether anyone would want to join your group and become friends with you and socially interact with you and hack on your code with you and that sort of sort of dreamland kind of like this is what hackers do right we get together and we drink our i don't know what what's the the cliche mountain dew and cheetos or something i'm not really sure i i'm sort of uh, partial to coffee myself uh, coffee and pretzels, maybe? That's a pretty good combination. Coffee and fries, that's a great combination. Coffee and bagel, that's always good. Um, and, and, and hack on code together, and at the end of the night we high-five, or whatever. I don't know what the what the, the picture in everyone's unique imagination of, of how this all works would be, but that's kind of like this idea of, okay, there's this social group, and we have code that we work on together. That's a social thing. The code itself is open no matter what. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what the other programmers think about you. It doesn't matter whether anyone trusts you or knows you or approves of your lifestyle or anything like that. It's, just, it's simply code. And if you can get a hold of it and it has an open license on it, then it's yours and you are now part of the open source scene. And that's, I think that, that flat sort of, this is the reality of it and very unceremonial kind of, that's all there is kind of frustrates some people because it feels not legitimate it feels like well you're you're saying i'm a part of this scene but i'm not really because i haven't joined a club and and it is it can be very frustrating but there is no club to join that that's the the bottom line is that there's no club to join i think in some cases the club is the release so for instance if there's an application out there that releases a regular cadence of of complete versions of the application of installable versions they they do a release cycle 
than if you are actually programming on that application. You've, you've copied the code, you've made it your own, you've submitted patches back up to the people who, who are actually pressing the button on the release date for the, for the thing to go out live. You're submitting some kind of merge request, right? You're saying, here's my new code, I would like for you to include that into your program. And sometimes you don't get that code included. And that can be frustrating. And sometimes it's just that they don't think that that feature should be, that, sh that should exist in their application. Or they don't think that your code is quite good enough. Or maybe it's not in the right place. That's happened to me for sure. And, you know, there have been some times where, where that's, that means that you have to follow through. You have to take back your code, change it as requested, and then resubmit. Or it might just be that that's, I mean, that might be the end of the conversation. It might just not be something that they want to include in their, in, in their software. Like the feature that you think is important, they don't agree with you. And that's happened to me as well. It's absolutely happened to me. Um, other times your, your, your merge is accepted uh, philosophically, but it is changed uh, out from under you. So they take your idea and then implement it themselves because, well, that was a good idea. We just didn't like how you did it. It's quicker for us to just make the changes ourselves. This, I guess, we could consider a philosophical inclusion. You get your idea in, but not your code. And that's just a function of how merging one set of code into another set of code works. That's just sometimes the people who are going to have to maintain it for the next 10 years, they don't want those lines of code like that. And and why not? They have the right to do that. They If they wanted it in a function instead, and you had just put it out into the into the main loop, then it's, it's completely legitimate for them to make adjustments. But with all that being said, there's still this problem of not really feeling included when that happens. Something a lot of us, I think, want the that we want the ceremony, we want the the acknowledgement, we want the okay, you are you are a member of this group now, socially and programmatically, you are you have joined, you you are a member, you have you have membership now, and once again, there's really in, in many, many ways, there's no such thing. It just doesn't exist. And one of the, the best things, I think, for an open source, for, for someone trying to get into open source, one of the best tr tricks that they can have up their sleeve is the ability to self-proclaim something. You, you can start calling yourself an open source hacker at any point, whenever you want to. When, when, when you've written some code, I think, is probably fair, uh, you can call yourself an open source hacker if you've if if you've not if you've not written a whole lot of code but you've installed Linux on your computer and that makes you feel like a hacker then maybe that's the time you should start calling yourself an open source hacker. It's just one of those things where no one's going to come by and and give you the certificate. You 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 really do have to give that to yourself. There's there's actually a um, there's a program for that. It's called mCookie. If you type in mCookie, you get a random number from DevURandom, and that's that, that, in a way, is a certificate. So if you do that on a Linux box or a BSD box, they, they, a lot of the BSDs have, have uh, ported mCookie over to their platform. So if you do that, then I guess you could call yourself a hacker, or whatever measure that you want to use. Because it is. It is all about what you are 
considering yourself. It is There is no outside authority. And for some people, that can be very frustrating or confusing, maybe. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about how to get to that point, how, how to make yourself start to feel like, yes, you are actually a member of open source. Yeah, you, you are participating. You are a valid member of the open source community. So the first thing, I think, is that we should take a coffee break because it's we're 20 minutes in, and I don't know about you, but it's definitely time for... <laughs> coffee. It's particularly good coffee today because the, the temperature has come down significantly randomly this weekend. Just really, really dropped. So we've got the fire going. Well, hot coffee tastes especially good right now. So before the coffee break, we were talking about open source and how to feel like you're a member of open source community and how, you, how to feel like you have joined open source and how frustrating that can be when you realize that there's no sign-up sheet. There's no one to to acknowledge that you have done this thing. And I don't want to... I, I want to make sure that I'm not diminishing the feeling of not being included. I, I don't want you to feel not included if you feel not included, but I, and, and therefore I don't want to make it seem like, well, that's just not a valid feeling, because it is a valid feeling. It's a totally valid feeling. It can be really, really frustrating, and it can turn people off of open source, because there is... there's no certificate. There's just no badge to say, yep, we accept you. You are one of us now. And that can be tough, because then you're just some random person in your apartment hacking on code, and no one knows that you're actually an open-source hero by, by night. That can, be, that can be hard. It can, be, it can kind of feel like, well, then why bother? Let's just go back to non-open-source, because maybe you had a forum that you frequented and that felt like you were included, or maybe in real life you have friends who talk a lot about these closed-source applications. You can commiserate with one another about how much you hate this company and how much how horrible their software is or how overpriced their software is, but actually it's really good software, so you're going to keep doing it. But let's be honest, you don't pay for it anyway, so who cares? And I think this is what a lot of people mean when they say that software is all about people. Computers are about people. In other words, you can have all the greatest code or all the greatest applications, or you can have a really great apparent community, but if people don't feel like they're a part of that community, then it really kind of falls flat. And you might think if if you're on the the, the invisible, not actually real inside, you might think, well, it's not really that hard to get involved. I mean, you can just join any forum, you can start talking anywhere, but that doesn't mean that there's a connection. And unfortunately, I don't know that there's a necessarily programmatic way to ensure human connection in every situation. I, I think that that would probably not work. I've thought about it before. I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if, for instance, the Fedora project had this triage program, and I'm using Fedora here because I, they, they happen to be pretty good at being 
that their community management is, is pretty darn good. And, and I mean, frankly, so was Ubuntu's, right? I mean, they kind of pioneered this. John O'Bacon and Ubuntu kind of kind of made this the, the way, I mean, I think arguably, I think that's why Ubuntu is what it is today, because of their community program, because of the stuff that John O'Bacon sort of laid down and said, this is how this community goes. This is how this works. It's quite impressive. And it, it did, to a certain degree, really, really ensure that when you joined the the community, you felt like you had joined the community. It it wasn't a hundred percent though. Even that one wasn't a hundred percent because in any community situation, any group, you're going to have those people who are kind of rising to the top, and that makes the people who aren't at the center, who aren't at the top, feel a little bit excluded, possibly. Or you've got people with certain ideas, and they come in, and they really want everyone to adopt their idea because they don't really quite understand how open source works yet, and they just think, well, I'm here, so why aren't you all taking my idea and making it a reality for me? It's it's a difficult kind of thing to juggle. I don't know that there's a, a way to make it happen reliably i do think that there are ways to think about it and that's what i was about to say about like the fedora program for instance what if they had like sort of a triage like a or not a triage maybe more a better term would be a host or a hostess who is at that front gate and when people enter they are welcomed and they are asked well what are you here for what are you hoping to contribute you know that kind of thing like sort of a I guess it really is a triage, but it's kind of a method by which people coming in who need extra guidance can get a little bit of extra guidance. So in other words, rather than just saying, hey, you're here, you're a member of this community, go for it, which for a lot of people just means like, go for what, do what, who do I, who do I answer to, who do I go? It's difficult for some people to operate under the, the declaration, you're here, now build something build what and and once i've built it who who do i tell about it because it feels like if i build something and put it on a wiki page or something then i don't know that anyone cares and i'm here because i wanted to be a member of a community where people do care so i think like a host or a hostess system where people are greeted at the door the proverbial door the imaginary door and maybe are given the opportunity to maybe sign up for something for a task or to at least get pointed in the right direction and the fedora uh, wiki used to have something like that they may still haven't looked for it lately they kind of like had the this sort of portal of the, yes i want to get involved well what are your interests are you interested in infrastructure are you interested in art are you interested in building uh software triaging bugs and you could choose and then there were mailing lists that you could join and i felt that was really really close to exactly what was needed it was just like once again at that point of like okay i've joined a mailing list and now what it kind of dropped off because once again if if you're a person who needs a little bit more guidance a little bit more instruction then just joining a mailing list where suddenly there are 30 new messages in your inbox every day, none of them directed at you, and, and you maybe speak up for something, but you get lost in the shuffle, or people expect you to know what you're doing. And it just feels like, okay, well, great, now you've you've taken me from an empty room to a full room, for, to a crowded room, but, but I still have no one to answer to, no one to talk to, no purpose in life still. So I think that there's some value possibly into some kind of system around making sure that newcomers feel like they've like they've actually reached a place where where there's a system in place and that's difficult because again once again as i've said for the first 20 or 30 minutes of this show there is no system the open source secret is that there's no system in place it is open source it is just a bunch of people who want their stuff to be open and that's the extent of it it's a really hard thing to understand as a person as a social creature that there's it is a free-for-all and for people who don't like a free-for-all, it's difficult to assure them that that's okay. 
So how do you get to that point? Where how do you how do you join open source then? If if there is no gateway and there's no badge for for joining, how do you get there? What are the steps? Well, first of all, I think certainly if you're if you're completely new to this this concept, you should go listen to episode zero of this very series of of GNU World Order. It's on the front page. It should be at the bottom of your RSS feed. Episode zero is an introduction to Linux because that's a significant and and palpable and important point of open source. That that's a good that's a good segment of open source. It it is an open stack, in fact, and that's important. That's significant. You should go listen to that and find out more about that. If you're not there yet, though, there are other ways in and. The, the first way, I think one of the earliest ways for me, was to maximize the amount of open source that I was using. I did that on my existing platform. I was using um, a closed source operating system at the time, but I knew, uh, I, I, I came to understand that there were these special kinds of applications that you could find on the internet, and I didn't exactly know what it all meant or what it was all about. I think I maybe vaguely understood that they were quote-unquote open source. I, I'm not even sure if I was really truly aware of that term, though. I don't, I don't really, I'm not really sure if I knew that term exactly. Maybe, maybe I did. But I knew that there were these special kinds of applications that you could get legally for free on the internet, and you could use them. And and that was a pretty exciting revelation for me. I mean, I'd, I'd, I think I'd been using one or two here and there, I think probably Audacity was one of them because I was doing a lot of music at the time, uh, and uh, I think there was a text editor of some sort that I was using that was not open source, but I, it was like some kind of shareware, and and that was close enough that I kind of understood that yeah there were these programmers out there who distributed their stuff for zero dollars. So I started maximizing how much of that I could run on my computer, and in fact the way that I went about it was I kind of listed all of the all of the applications on my existing computer, all of the ones that were kind of the default sets, right? Like, just the obvious ones, like, oh, there's a chat application, there's a text editor, there's a, maybe there's a music editor of some sort, or a sound editor, there's um, maybe an office application, yeah, like an office application, an office suite, that's the term I was looking for, um, and so on. And I, I looked specifically for the tools that replaced those. And so I would end up with things like Pigeon for chat. I would end up with uh, LibreOffice or OpenOffice back then for an Office suite, Emacs for a text editor, Firefox for a web browser, and so on and so on. And I just, I just tried to ensure that as many applications as were on my computer off the shelf when I did a clean install of the operating system, all the applications that I was then running in, in user space they were open source applications. And that made me feel pretty good about sort of my computing health because I thought, well, at least I am supporting independent producers, independent content, using this code from real people rather than from big corporations. And I just kind of felt better about doing that because that's one of the things that I like to do. It's kind of the equivalent of buying locally except on your computer. And so it's not geographically local possibly, but it is, it's from an independent person. It's from someone writing code on their own time, making sure that it's shareable and redistributable. Those are, those are values that I support and that I, that I, that I share. So I figured I would use their applications as a sign of, if nothing else, solidarity. Now, after that, once you find your whole open, 
uh, set of applications, once you've swapped everything out that you can possibly swap out, and, and trust me, there are few things that you cannot swap out, you do start to realize that on a closed source operating system, it is sometimes more trouble than it should be to run open source applications. And this is a problem with closed source operating systems, I think. And and the idea is that they don't really want you running open source applications on their platform. They want to keep you very much within the environment that they have created. So if you are straying outside of the things that they have that they're keeping tabs on, then you are you are not conforming to the way that they want you to be using your your computer. Now that alone should send sort of shivers up your spine, like that shouldn't feel right to you, but maybe it does because after all, it's still just a computer, right? It's it's if if your toaster is sitting on your counter and it toasts your bread, then its job is getting done and you're happy with it, and that's all that really matters. And it doesn't matter whether you're toasting bread that you bought from the supermarket or whether you're toasting bread that you baked in your own oven or the one that you got from the local market it's still doing the job right and and in computer to 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 make that analogy back to computers i mean if your computer turns on when you press the on button and it it presents you with a desktop upon which you can run applications whether they're open source or closed source it doesn't really it, it it's still it that it's doing its job but there's this whole angle of them trying to prevent you from running open source, and sometimes it's not it's not direct. I mean, it's not they're, they're not making it impossible. You don't have to really sort of you don't have to break anything in order to enable it to happen. But you do have to use maybe um, systems that that seem a little bit maybe unmaintained by that that corporation. For instance, trying to run an open source application w w on a on a on a system that that doesn't provide something, then then you have to you have to install you know a, a, some kind of emulator or or a, a base layer to to run so that you can then put something else on top of it, and, and so you're sort of building your own stack within this closed environment, and maybe you have to enable certain permissions in order to even install that stuff in the first place, and so on and so on, and it becomes it becomes troublesome, and sometimes there are problems with the open source applications even running correctly on that platform because once again it is a closed source app it's a closed source platform and in many many cases those closed platforms make it very difficult for open source programmers to uh both legally and conveniently develop on the platform in the first place and i've heard this a lot you know people bemoaning sort of like well why don't they why don't they why are they only developing on Linux? Like, why aren't they they developing for this one or that one? And and it's this weird reverse kind of, oh well, you you're you are excluding me because you're not programming for my platform. And I see how that feels that way. I can totally see how that yeah seems like you are being sort of unfairly treated because you're not using Linux. But actually, if you really think about it, there's a there's this whole layer of of legality and and finance that that the other platforms simply are not taking into a, into account. So, for instance, Windows. I mean, in order to develop on Windows, you need to have Windows, right? You you need a copy of Windows to run. Now, certain people don't want to 
pay for Windows. Other people can't afford to pay for Windows. Um, either way, it's very difficult, to, actually, to get to get Windows once you've done away with it. And and okay, maybe you might argue, well, why did you get away? Why why did you do away with it? But I mean, you know, if you got a computer when it was Windows Seven, and then there was that one Windows Eight in there somewhere, and then there was Windows Ten, so. Even if you had gotten, even you know, if you installed Linux on your computer back on the Windows 7 days, it's quite unlikely that you would end up, if you'd kept your Windows 7 install disk or your install code or whatever it comes as, I honestly don't know, um, then then you still wouldn't be on Windows 10 today. So you wouldn't be developing on Windows 10 unless you paid for Windows 10, probably. And there, are, you could probably think of some kind of exception, some some way to get it, and you'd be okay, and that's fine. But maybe you missed that window or something. And and point being, you don't have it, and you shouldn't have to hold on to it. You didn't you didn't go out thinking, okay, I'm going to buy a Windows computer. You went out to buy a computer, and then you put on the operating system that you wanted to put onto it, and that should be fine. There should be no problem with that. So the fact that a computer comes with an operating system at all in the first place is a little bit, eh, little bit a little bit questionable. So in in the Windows ecosystem you can go and get developer copies of Windows. You can get a it's like a 20 gig download. So once again, ideally, you know, maybe you have 20 gigs per month to download a Windows image and it is it would have to be roughly per month or so, maybe 2 months, 3 months, whatever because it, it does expire, it eventually expires. So you have to re, you have to re-download these images to develop on Windows. And not everyone, believe it or not, lives in America, in North America. And not everyone, believe it or not, has a great internet connection. I think a lot of people forget that. Uh, and and so the, a 20 gig download on a regular basis just to maintain sort of a, a virtual machine running Windows is is a lot to ask. And then you're, again, assuming that the computer upon which someone is developing has the spare 20 gigs to host uh, a, just a, a developer image, which isn't necessarily something that people want to do to, to maintain, right? I mean, 20 gigs for a virtual machine is is a lot to ask, actually, uh, especially when you when you think of of a Linux virtual machine that can fit in 200 megabytes. Maybe you might you might throw two gigs at it because you want to have a little bit of extra room for some code. Um, and you know, two gigs of hard drive space, five gigs of hard drive space, maybe two gigs of RAM. I mean, that that's, that's a huge difference than 20 gigs. Now, that's that's for the Windows development. If you're trying to develop on Mac, it, it's a lot worse because you you literally have to have the hardware. Uh, it is illegal to emulate Mac OS. So if you wanted to to develop for Mac OS, you you cannot emulate it, uh, not legally, uh, and in order to to get it, then it's it's Mac hardware or or nothing, and that's I mean that's impossible for some people. It's it's just impossible because again, especially outside of the uh, U.S., there's a question of of import fees and and exorbitant prices, uh, even within the U.S. exorbitant prices, and and it's just not it's not feasible to keep keep that up long term. I mean you might you might envision someone doing that at one at some point, right? In like 2010, maybe they 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 make that purchase. They 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 just take the hit. They 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 swallow the cost, and they make that purchase. But now it's 2019, and everything is outdated. Everything's been updated in order to get 
graphic performance they have to keep upgrading because there's not really a whole lot of room for for upgrading the physical hardware on a Mac, and so it becomes it would become a, a three to four thousand to five thousand dollar expense every cup you know every every so often just to maintain a development environment for Mac OS. Now you could say, well, yeah, sure. I mean, if you're a hacker, then you shouldn't really care about, you know, your your prime concern is that information is getting out there, that open source is being distributed, and so you shouldn't actually care about the legality of the thing anyway. You should just download an image of uh, a Hackintosh and and install it onto a VM and do your development there because that's just that's what a hacker is, right? And and while I certainly agree that the whole uh, Con, you know, being concerned about law is is not something that that is really worth troubling over too much. Um, there's this whole other angle of 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 that legal aspect, which is that it's a false construct, right? The the legality of it is is it's just something that someone made up. Uh, and famously, I think recently Microsoft supposedly sued someone for distributing. Windows Restore Discs or something like that, although I think he was selling them, but I, I could be wrong. Maybe it was for free. I, I forget. The, the the legality was completely arbitrary, and it's completely arbitrary in these cases as well. You don't have to, you don't have to make it illegal. It just happens to be illegal, so you could bypass it. No one's going to knock on your door and ask, hey, are you developing lately on any illegal virtual machines that I should know about? that we should arrest you for. I mean, that's just not going to happen realistically. That said, because it is a false construct, because it's something that someone just made up, then I think that there's a lot of value in saying, well, this is a false construct that I'm not going to acknowledge. By which I mean, I'm not even going to go against it, because going against it would be to acknowledge it as a valid construct. So what I'm trying to say here is that if I, quote-unquote, illegally download software, whether it's an operating system or an application, then I am acknowledging that that company has something of value that I need to go against a made-up law in order to download in the first place. And that's a game that I am not interested in playing. It's a game that a lot of people are not interested in playing, and that's aside from the legality. I mean, there are there are groups out there that are doing significant enough development processes that to risk some kind of illegal download would would it could potentially ruin them it's one of those things where as long as you as long as it's happening and no one does know then it's fine but the moment it becomes known then it would then everything would be lost and that's obviously too great a risk so the the impression that there is some kind of exclusionary sort of bias happening because people are developing on a free platform and not so much on non-free platforms is a little bit askew because the reality of it is that they are not being allowed to develop on the non-free platforms. That's, that is why open source has a, a strong bias toward Linux because that's the one that is truly, truly inclusive and truly, truly accessible to everyone whereas the non-free platforms are a lot less inclusive. They are, by definition, exclusive. They are non-free. They are not liberated. They are things that are actively keeping people away from their their ecosystem unless you pay a price. And I, I mean a literal price, really. 
Um, and in some cases, it might be bandwidth price. It might be something else. But I mean, there's there's a cost there. Whereas on Linux, that cost just doesn't exist. And that's a very significant thing. It's it, there's no exclusion happening. It just for some reason kind of looks like exclusion from the outside because you think, well, why wouldn't you give me better treatment? And really, you should be asking the corporation that owns your operating system, why aren't you allowing people to provide me better service? To divorce yourself of that problem, you can install a free operating system, and that's quite convenient. And a lot of people think, well, that's a lot of work. That's a big investment to try to figure that out. And that's true, it is. Uh, luckily, a lot of it can be done uh, in virtual machines nowadays, or it can be done on a spare computer, so you can kind of ease your way into it. And I think that once you do that, the the concept of the elite uh, computer user, and I'm doing air quotes around that, it, it starts to coalesce. It starts to kind of become something that actually does make sense. Because when everything is available to you on an operating system where you can actually, you have, you have just the, 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 the smallest inkling of a question of like, why, why does that happen? Why, why when I click my little application menu, do I see applications with those icons next to them? Like, why, why isn't it some other icon? Well, a right-click menu editor, and you'll, you'll find out why. Or, you know, why when I launch a shell, does, does, does it look this way and not some other way? And you might learn about other shells that you might be able to use, or different shell configuration files that you might be able to create. And already, like, I've, I've talked about concepts that in many ways are, it, it's that sort of leet speak, right? It's that jargon, it's that, that stuff that people think, oh, this is secret knowledge, this is hidden, this is a hidden power that, that someone has learned. And it's, and the, the way to learn that stuff is to use it and to ask questions and then to find out the answer. And then suddenly you look back and you think, wow, I totally know how to configure a shell now. And I know that I'm not limited to just using the bash shell. I could use Z shell instead, Z shell, whatever, and, and use a different theme and, and, and uh, trick it out with a bunch of plugins and so on. And suddenly you're doing all of these crazy things that you never knew were possible, but now somehow suddenly make sense to you. And that's super powerful. That's a really, really amazing place to be. And I think that's the inclusivity and the the feeling of inclusion that people are actually looking for. I think that's the the missing badge of open source is the knowledge that comes along with using open source. You can join a community, you can join a forum, you can submit a bug a bug report or a merge request, and quite potentially none of that will make you feel necessarily included, like you've joined a club. But when you know how to do some of those weird little things on an open source system because you have access to those things, that's when you start to feel like you've joined a community of people who share that knowledge. So anyway, I hope that helps anyone who maybe has been thinking about how to be included in open source or, or how to minimize exclusion or the the appearance of exclusion in open source and free software because i think that's kind of the extent of it i think that's that's what we're that's what we're building here something that 
that doesn't know the concept of exclusion, but hopefully something that knows how to express properly inclusion. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Sometimes I prefer not to have my superpowers, if only to make my adventures a bit more difficult. <laughs>